And we've been talking about our beginnings. You know, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we've been focusing on that over the last couple of weeks. We're going to continue that through the end of August, looking at, at many of the first that we see in Scripture. The first, when, when the earth first formed, when, when we had the first people here on the earth. We're going to see the first sin. We're going to see the first promise. God's first destruction of the earth. We're going to see the first, the beginning of race and, and ethnicity. We'll see that in Scripture. All these things are laid out in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. We see what God has revealed to us about how everything that we see and everything that we experience, where it all came from and how it came to be. As a matter of fact, I think I have a video that I want to throw up on the screen um, that sort of speaks to that a little bit. Let's see the size of everything. That or not. It is nice, yes. I could, I could probably take a, take a stab at it, but... Skyscrapers. Uh, stars. I think maybe we'll... Uh, I think maybe we'll end this. But isn't that pretty? Yeah, it sure is. So, okay, all right, another day, another day. You can, uh, we'll figure out what's going on. Hey, things happen, things happen. So, let's just move right along. Now, one of the things when you read Genesis, when you, when you study through Genesis, and, and really through the whole Bible, okay, and understand Genesis is the first of 66 books, okay, written over 1,400 years, many different authors, but we see this running theme of Scripture. And one of the things that, that we have as a theme is this. God is given the permission to define who He is. And God does just that. And we must be very careful as we study Scripture and as we live life that we allow the Lord to tell us who He is and what He has done. And that's why it is that we study the Bible. Now, I've got a silly little cartoon I'll put up on the screen. I came across this this week, and I thought I'd share this with you. Um, I don't even need sound, but I do need projection if it's going to work. Did we get in there, Josh? Um, you know Josh does a lot for this church, running all this audiovisual stuff, and we appreciate it. And he only gets attention when something doesn't work. Um, but we appreciate you, Josh. We know that you're doing a lot of things. Okay. This is a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. All right? Now, the cartoon wasn't drawn by Charles Spurgeon, but, but you'll get the idea. He says this, a God who can be fashioned by our own thoughts. Let me read to you the thoughts. Let's see. What do I want Jesus to be like? Based on my own desires, feelings, ethnicity, life experiences, socioeconomic status, country of origin, fears, anxieties, friends, life goals, prejudices, blah 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 A God who can be fashioned by our own thoughts is no more a God, next slide, than an image produced by our own hands. Charles Spurgeon said that in the mid-19th century. Isn't that a great truth for us to remember? We must allow the Word of God, the Word of God, to define who He is and what He has done. Let me show you a, a Hebrew word, okay? Here, the, the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament, I mean 99% of it was written in Hebrew. And at the top you have a Hebrew word, okay? This is Toledoth. It reads from right to left, the Hebrew letters. And this is where we get our, our word, Genesis. 
If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 37, and I just want to walk you through the different toledoths that we have in Scripture. The word toledoth, what it means, what it means, it means Genesis, it means start, it means origin, and all through the book of Genesis, this word kind of creates an outline for the book. Now, I came across a definition of the word toledoth this week that I really liked. I'd never seen it before, and I thought it was really helpful for me to understand um, how this puts together the book of Genesis. And so I'll share it with you, and it's the word launch point. The word launch point. Now, we won't take the time to look at every one of these references, but look at Genesis chapter 37, verse number 2. It says, these are the generations, that's the word toledoth in Hebrew. Okay? You could translate it origin. You can translate it genesis. You can translate it ancestry. What it means, though, is the launch point. Okay? This is the start, and what follows is what happens. And so when you go backwards now, from the end of Genesis towards the front, it's really interesting to see what happens. In Genesis 37.2, we have the launch point of Jacob. In 25.19, you can turn there, and you'll probably stay ahead of me because I'm up here fooling around a little bit, but in 25.19, we have another Toledoth, and this is of Isaac. 25.19, okay? So we just go through each of these, and we can see the launch point of the story of the account of these individuals. 25.19 says, these are the generations of Isaac. So now we have Isaac and launch off from here, here's what happened. Go back a few more pages. We go to Genesis chapter 10, verse number 1. Okay? We now have, these are the generations, the launch point of the sons of Noah. Go back a few more pages to Genesis chapter 5, verse number 1. It says, this is the book of the launch point of Adam. Go to chapter 2, verse number 4. It says, These are the generations or the launch point of the heavens and earth. But what's interesting about this? This word toledoth is all through the book of Genesis. This is the launch point of Abram. This is the launch point of Isaac. This is the launch point of Jacob. This is the launch point of Noah. This is the launch point of Adam. This is the launch point of the heavens and earth. It creates an outline for the book of Genesis. But turn back one more page to Genesis 1. I want you to notice something here. There is no Toledoth. There is no. Now why is that? There is no launch point of God. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Everything thereafter requires a launch point. But God is eternal. There is no launch point of God. You don't find a time when God didn't exist and now here's what happened thereafter. That doesn't happen. Theologians have scratched their heads over the years. Biblicists have scratched their heads. Wonder why no Toledoth at Genesis 1.1? Because there is no launch point of our God. He has always been he will always be. There is, he is the beginning and the end. Revelation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus spoke and all of this existed and He always existed to speak. 
told it off. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. So you were asked the question, um, so if you could go back anywhere in history, where would you go? I think I know where I'd like to go. I'd like to go to the Garden of Eden. I think that'd be pretty cool to see. Now, this is a depiction of it, maybe, not really, but we'll count it. We'll call it that today. I wore my green shirt because we're in the garden, okay? I'd like to go back to the Garden of Eden before the fall, before sin had come into the earth, when relationships, though they were very, very few in number, were perfect, where there was no past of hurt and heartache and damage, and abuse. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'd love to see that and just just to experience it. To see that brand new earth and to see the trees just forming right there. The animals, God just making them. God just breathing life into Adam and Eve. I want to I recommend a book. I don't do this very often. I want to recommend a book to you today. Um, it's called Paralandra. Who's heard of the book Paralandra? You've heard of the author, C.S. Lewis, okay? I've got it up here. Um, I'm, I'll offer it to loan to somebody if you'd like to read it. Um, it's, it's a little thick, okay? But, uh, but it's a great book, okay? It's a great book. Now, this is actually three books in one. Um, a lot of people don't know this about C.S. Lewis. You know he wrote maybe Mere Christianity. You might know he wrote Screwtape Letters and many other, many other non-fiction books. But he wrote some fiction works as well. Most of you have probably heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, okay, Prince Caspian, and all those, Silver Chair, all that kind of stuff. He wrote those in about the mid-1950s. But in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis wrote, set, wrote three science fiction books. So this is a 1940 science fiction book. Kind of weird, huh? And in this book, C.S. Lewis, who loved astronomy... Okay? He had already come to Christ. C.S. Lewis was an, was an adamant atheist, hated the, exist, the idea of the existence of God, and set out to disprove whether God even existed. And in the process, became a theist, meaning he believed in God, and then became a Christian, meaning he put his trust in Jesus Christ as salvation. Well, what this science fiction book is, it's very good. And what Paralandra does is, now this is all a story, okay? This is is fiction. This is as real as the Chronicles of Narnia. But let me tell you about it because I find it very helpful for us even as we move into the passage for today. What happens is, um, God comes to a person, okay, and says, I need you to travel to Venus. Okay, already weird, I know. But I want you to travel to Venus, and so the person gets in this weird little, like, spaceship that C.S. Lewis has met. Remember, we hadn't even landed on the moon at this point, okay? And he describes this person flying his little, on this little spaceship to Venus. And the reason why God is sending him to Venus is this. On Venus, there is a man and a woman that God has placed there. And they haven't sinned. And the main character is sent to Venus to convince them not to sin. And it's several hundred pages of you and me trying to speak to somebody and warn them against sin. And it's, 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 just, it's just amazing what, what Lewis does with this. The, this, uh, this planet... Um, I can't remember which one it is now. I said it just a minute ago. Venus. It's covered by water, okay? But on the water has floating these little islands, okay? And he, he describes them. They're beautiful and all this stuff. And, and the one rule that God has made, 
The one rule that God has set down for this Adam and Eve character on Venus is this. They can not sleep on fixed land. Now, I know it's weird, okay? Just bear, bear with the story. They can only sleep on these, like, rafts that, that float on the water. But it's wonderful, and they love it. Well, not only does God send this individual to convince them not to sin, Satan sends somebody there to convince them to sin. And so now you have this, this whole conflict going on between one person saying, you can trust God, and somebody else saying, trust yourself. Trust yourself. Let me read to you one quote as the accuser comes and tries to trick the woman to sin. And he, what he does is he comes to her and he paints a picture of the women on earth. And he says this, They are great of spirit. They always reach out their hands for the new and unexpected good. They see that it is good long before the men understand it. Their minds run ahead of God and what He has told them. They do not wait for God to tell them what is good. They know it for themselves. They are, as it were, little gods. And because of their wisdom, their beauty is much greater than yours, he says to this woman on Venus. And she says, Oh, I wish I could see them. And he says, I wish you could too. They are beautiful. They are powerful. They are full of wisdom. They are little gods. Isn't that the temptation that we fall into? To believe that we are gods. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2 and see what God has done, what the Lord has designed. And we're going to jump in here at verse number 18. And I want us to trust what the Lord has called us to because what I have to say to you today from God's Word, all I'm doing is pointing to God's Word, it runs contrary to most everything you will hear in almost any other environment. Let's read it. 2.18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man broke out in song. That's what this is. I'm not going to sing it. This, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, now God speaking, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Well, I want us to see here that this is the beginnings of many things. The Lord is now designing male and female. And this very passage is quoted over and over and over in Scripture. I put one up on the, board, on the, on the screen for you um, from Mark. But in reality, over and over and over, this passage is referenced throughout the New Testament. Over and over and over, Genesis chapter 2 is appealed to to support many other statements of the New Testament. Hear the words of Jesus from the beginning of creation. God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Exact quote, Jesus made this exact quote from Genesis chapter 2. So what we see is this truth, before we go any further, and that is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ truly believed Genesis chapter 2. He believed it to be the Word of God, and took it as it is written and received it as it is, and use that to teach us many other truths about the Lord and about His ways. Well, I want you to see in verse number 18 of chapter 2 that everything is good. Everything is good. We know that prior to this, that everything is good except for one thing. Verse 18. That man is alone. So what God decides to do in verse number 18 of chapter 2 is this. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. This is literally a suitable or a corresponding helper. Now, remember what had happened. Adam is there. God now parades all the animals in front of him. They come two by two, very likely. And Adam sees them, and he then gives names for them. Now, God is doing this to teach a lesson. We talked about this last week. He doesn't have to have every single animal come. He just brings enough for Adam to realize, you know what? I'm the only one without a corresponding helper. God is teaching him a lesson. And the lesson is this. You cannot operate alone. As wonderful as you are, you are made in the image of God, Adam. You have the image of God implanted on your soul. But you cannot operate alone. Do not in your pride and in your arrogance think that you can make it on your own. You cannot. So God goes to great effort to teach him this lesson. And then the Lord says, I will make a suitable helper, a corresponding helper. Now I imagine that some women hear that, and some men as well, and think this is some type of a derogatory term. Like a servant, okay? Like a valet, okay? Come, here, get me a drink. Come, woman, you know, bring me an iced tea, bring me lemonade. Hurry now, make it snappy. That's what we think, right? And there's no doubt about it. The women are going, no, I don't think that. Um, but there's no doubt about it. There have been times where that has been the effort that has been how this is made to look. But that's a misunderstanding of many things. Number one is this. The Hebrew word here is ezer. It is used of two people in all of Scripture. Twice in the book of Genesis, four times in the book of Deuteronomy, eleven times in the book of Psalms, and in several of the books has it once. It is used two times in Genesis for the first woman. The other like 27 times, guess who's called Ezer? The Lord God is called Ezer. Psalm 121, listen. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That is that same word. So this is not a derogatory term. That's not what this is. This is not a, a servant boy or a servant girl. Run and get me some food. That's not what it is at all. What it is is, is one who is 
worthy to come alongside and assist in this mission that's been given. They're worthy, correspond, they're worthy to come alongside and meet the goals that have been given to this man. That's what this means. The Holy Spirit in the book of John is called the Helper. Now that's in Greek, so it's a little different, but it's the same concept. So the Lord creates a suitable Helper. Moving along, we, we see how it happens as in 19 and 20 as these animals are, are brought along. Okay, in Verse number 21, let me read it for you. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. Now, now that word rib, now some people, you know, they, rightly so, you kind of wonder, like, what's the deal with that? A rib? Well, this word is used 35 times in the Old Testament. Only one time is it translated rib. This one. It's the only place. The rest of the place is just flesh. Probably what we have here in your translation is, is, a, is, is a, a, I don't want to call it a mistranslation, but just a, it's an idea that kind of got carried along, like there was a rib. Like it's not true that men have, you know, fewer ribs than women or more. None of that stuff is true, okay? Here's what God did. He made Adam from the ground. He then took a piece from Adam's side. And from that, he did not create bara. He fashioned, he built. This is the word for making a masterpiece. He fashioned or, or went to great effort and built this woman. And there she was. And all of her glory, having the image of God upon her. And Adam saw she is an acceptable, suitable, probably best translated, corresponding helper. She can come along side now, okay? Come along side. And the two of us can chase after the mission God has given my husband much better than he ever could himself. Much better. Now, if you and I ever meet to do premarital counseling, okay? And you sit there with your potential spouse and and I'm going to ask you, so why do you want to get married? And oh, we love each other, all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to tell you this story. I had a great friend. At the time, he's probably my best friend. And he got married. Before he got married, I said, why do you want to get married? I just, you know, what do it? I mean, I love marriage, but marriage doesn't seem to fit you. You know, you're wild and doing all this. Why do you want to get married? He said this. I was chasing after Jesus as hard as I could. And he was. He said, I looked over and I saw her. And she was chasing after Jesus as hard as she could. And I thought, we could run faster together. So we want to get married. Man, that's the answer, okay? So when I ask you, you should say all that, okay? You get a gold star. That's what this is. That's what's going on here. Okay, the Lord is now given this mission to Adam. His mission is this. His mission is to glorify God. That's his mission. 
His mission is to be fruitful and multiply. That's pretty tough for him to do on his own, okay? His mission is to have dominion over the earth and subdue all the earth. And he can't pull that off on his own. So God brings to him a corresponding helper to help him along in the process. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last, after seeing all these animals, right? After they come one after the other, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We are equal. We, there is equality here. I don't rule over her with dominion. That's not what happens. We are equal in the eyes of Christ. We both have the image of God. We are fellow heirs in Christ flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. We're the same creatures. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this here again is, this is the first, by the way, very important apologetic truth. The first Hebrew poetry used in Genesis 1 and 2. If you've ever heard the idea, well, Genesis 1 is just a poem. We really shouldn't take it literally. No, this is the first poem, Hebrew poetry, used in Genesis 1 and 2. The rest is literal historical record. So he breaks out in this song, and it's one of worth. It's one of glory. It's one of equality. And then God instructs. And listen to the instruction of God in verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And I'm sure Adam was like, oh man, I've got to leave mom and dad. I love them so much. There is no mom and dad. Adam had no mother, no father. So why did God say that? Did God make a mistake? How embarrassing for God. No. This is a pattern that now is to go echoing forward into all of the future. And Jesus repeated it. Leave, and they shall become one flesh. That is, they shall he holds fast to his wife. They shall cleave together. They now come together in many ways. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. They come together and hold fast and create a one flesh relationship. In verse 25, it's very important. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now let's understand what that means. That doesn't mean what you might think it means. It doesn't mean they were okay to tip out of the bathroom and grab a towel. That's not what it means. What this means is now God has established what the sexual boundaries are. This is the boundary of sexual activity. Here it is, folks. It is this husband and this wife, this man and this woman, bound together in this lifelong relationship. And there is no reason for shame. There is no reason for guilt. There is no perversion at this point. So even Adam and Eve, they didn't have any kind of past of images they've seen or places they've been or things they have done. None of that is there. So it's not that they're ashamed of 
It's not that they're not ashamed of seeing one another. Okay, that isn't what it is. Sexual boundaries have been established. By who? By Christians? By pastors and how they interpret the Bible? By the popular opinion? No, by the law. That's it. By the law of the land, right? No. No. By God. In love. In love when He placed them there in the garden. And He gave them the gift of sexuality. It's a gift. A blessing. A great joy. That He gave them. And placed loving boundaries on it. Well, that's the passage in a, in a nutshell. Let me, let me just make a few points. And there, you know... There's so many things to say from this passage. I, I hope you appreciate how important this passage is in our culture today. Honestly, if you were to say to me, tell me, what is the most crucial passage of Scripture for what's going on in our world today? I would be hard-pressed to pick one different than this one. Not that, not that we want to see this made the law of the land. No, no, that's not what I'm after. What I'm after is us as believers in Christ and followers of the Lord, we understand some truths that we see in this passage. Like number one is this. Male and female are created in God's image. Male and female both are created in God's image. Hear the word of the Lord. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are, now listen, heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. You know what this means? Guys, if you are living in a way that overpowers your wife like a ward cleaver, okay? You walk in the house and there she is, all decked out and ready to get you tea. And Now, that might work. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But if you are domineering over your wife, God didn't even hear your prayer. Wow. So you pray, Oh God, encourage my wife. She's really discouraged. That prayer doesn't leave the room. You pray, oh God, I'm going to lose my job. You've got to provide for me. That prayer doesn't leave the room. You pray, Lord, give me victory over this sin. I'm so sick of it. It's chasing me. God doesn't even hear that prayer. It's a big deal. We are co-heirs in Christ. I feel this is very important for us to say and to emphasize what this passage means. Secondly, not only is it going to take as long, um, male and female, both created for relationship. Male and female. Fifty-eight one another commands in the New Testament. Fifty-eight. That's a lot. We are created for relationship. And the thing about all these commands is they're not suggestions. They're commands. Greet one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. These are not suggestions. They're commands. We were made for relationship. We were made for relationship. And I would say this. 
Almost all of us are made for marriage. It should be a very unique thing if you have the gift of singleness like Paul. It is a very unique thing. You know, the marriage marriage rate in our culture is declining like crazy. Declining like crazy. I think much of it is because people don't understand this truth. We were made for marriage. We were. This was God's plan. That we would be fruitful and multiply. And now I understand that some of us, you, I am married, some want to be married and you're waiting and you're longing. Well, the Lord brought one to Adam. You keep waiting. But be careful. Be careful of setting this expectation so high. I mean, I read some of these things that some of these, primarily women, but not always, are right for what they want to see true of their husbands. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm pretty sure he resurrected in the year 33 A.D. Because that's the only person that can be this. Listen, I, I heard this on the radio the other day, and I thought it was great. It was a female speaking. I don't know who it was. But she said, a great marriage is great. But a good marriage is good too. That's a good truth. You hear that? Oh, we all want a great marriage. I know that. But a good marriage, that's pretty good too. Maybe yours isn't perfect. Mine isn't. Okay? But a good marriage is a good thing. And God made us for relationship. And we cannot get away from Genesis chapter 2 that the primary relationship he is talking about is that of a husband and wife. Okay, so be careful. Be careful. That's the third point as well. (laughs) Created for marriage. Male and female, created with boundaries. I think we hit that pretty heavily earlier. Okay, we were made with boundaries. No sense of guilt for Adam and Eve. No no temptations to pornea. Remember that word? No temptation there. They're living out Hebrews 13.4. Listen to Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And they're walking that and living that right there in the garden. Now, there is something that is a little different though. And I want to hit this. Male and female, all, everything I've said so far is, is, is very true. But there is some differences too. Now, these differences, before we get to them, these differences are not about um, earning income. They're not about who likes to cook, who likes to clean. They're not about who mows the grass. They're not about, you know, who's good at lifting weights. They're not good at, you know, who likes to share their heart and who's a little more cold. They're not about who gets mad and, and who doesn't. That's not what it is. Okay? I know men and women who are all those things. I know some men that will cry at the drop of a hat. <laughs> They're crying. And I know some women who will, drop, will cry at the drop of a hat. I know some men who just love to pump iron and lift weights. And I know some women who just love to pump iron and lift weights. I know some men who love to cook. I'm one of them. I love to cook. I think it's awesome. And I know some women who love to cook. Okay? Now, I hate to clean. I hate to clean. So does my wife. So it's tough. (laughs) You know? But there are some differences. Now, I don't have time to talk about all this right now, but we will as as time goes on and as we study more of the Word of God together. But I want you to know that male and female are created for different roles in the church and in the home. Different roles in the home and in the church. 
Now, quite honestly, Scripture is very silent on the role of men and women in the workplace and men and women in the government and men and women in those... Very silent. So I'm going to choose to be very silent on those as well. But when it comes to the home and the church, God is not silent. There are different roles. And now the theological title for what I'm, going to, what I'm going to present to you is a big word, and it's even hard to pronounce. It's complementarianism. Okay? Can we put it up on the screen? Because there it is. All right. And it's this. That God created men and women equal in worth and dignity. If you battle against that, remember, God doesn't hear your prayer. Equal in worth and dignity, yet he assigned them different roles in the church and in the home. Now you can see this all through Scripture, but let me just point out, I want to point out five things in Genesis 1 and 2 that show us that Adam was called to lead. He was called to lead in his home. He was called to serve as the spiritual leader. Now let me give you a great word for what that is, men. It's an initiator. Adam is called to be the spiritual initiator. He is to initiate towards spiritual goals. He is to initiate towards spiritual growth. He is to initiate for his family. And I want to tell you, that was a struggle for me for years. When Nancy and I were first married, you know, she would say, you want to go to church? And I'd be like, nah, not really. You go ahead and go. Yeah, that was me. That was me. Okay? I was not a spiritual initiator. But the Lord worked in my life greatly, and I'm thankful for that. But that's what the spiritual leader means. It means an initiator, okay? And Adam was called to be that. Five ways you see that in the Genesis creation account. Number one, the order of creation. Think about it. God made Adam from the dust of the ground, and from his side he made Eve. Now you might say, well, how are you making that mean something? The New Testament did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay? Secondly, the order of accountability. After they sinned, remember Eve ate from the fruit and then gave it to Adam, and Adam ate it? And who did God come to? Adam, where are you? The order of accountability. God went to Adam, not Eve. Say, well, how can you make that mean something? It means something in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. Next, the designation of woman as helper. It does not say, and the two of you shall be a helper to one another. It does not say that. It says that the woman is to, the wife here is to come alongside and help her husband towards these spiritual goals. You say, well, Lo, how can you make that mean something? The New Testament does. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, lead your wives. I'm sorry. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits unto Christ. Husbands, love your wives and wives, respect your husbands. Husbands are to be the spiritual initiator in that family and in that relationship. Fourthly, the man's naming of the woman. It is, man was naming all these animals and he was called to name Eve. Woman, out of man. And lastly, you'll see next week, the attack of Satan. Where does Satan go? Here's what God intended. God intended for God to be the leader. For Adam to come underneath him and to, and to, and to 
then lead his family. Okay? And in this family, it's only Eve. That's all it is. So now we got God, we got Adam, we got Eve. And where does Satan attack? Boom. He goes there. He goes there. Now, why do we struggle with this so much? Because, let's put the next one up there. The female is called to serve as helper in the home and also in the church. Now, why do we struggle with that so much? I've been thinking about that this week. And I want to put these out there so that maybe you can think about which of these maybe you struggle. If you struggle with this, you struggle with this? Men, do you struggle to initiate? Women, do do you struggle? Do you struggle to... To follow the, the leadership of your husband in your home? Is that a battle for you? I'll get there. I'll just say that I'm, I'm thinking, you might say, what does this look like, Lowell? What does this look like? You know, in my home, it can look very simple. Very simple. It looked like, hey, um, you know, Nance, I, let's sit the kids down and read from the Bible tonight. Okay? Let's do that. Okay, all right, what can I do? You want to do it in the living room or you want to do it in the kitchen? You know, how do you want to do it? Tell you what, I'll, get, I'll clean off the table real quick. You got to think about what you want to do and then we'll, we'll do that. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't come out of the back room, okay? You know, wife, I have decided what we will do. That's not, that's not how it works, okay? That's not it at all. You know, small groups are coming, all right? And believe it or not, my wife and I, I on the deck last night, we're sitting there eating dinner. Like, you know, what do we do about small groups? We're talking about it. We're talking about it back and forth. You know, we, we could do it here, we could do it there, we could be part of this group. What, what do you think? What do you think, Nancy? She's telling me, you know, well, if we do it then, this problem. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. If we do it then, there's this. Yeah, man, I hadn't thought of that. And she says, well, tell you, why, you know, think about what we talked about. I mean, this is not an exact quote, but think about what you talked about. Pray about it, and I don't know, I think the Lord will lead us. Okay, I'll do that. See, that's how it works. There's no declaration. There's no big book, you know. There's no, like, this, this, this. There's no pointing, okay? That doesn't happen. So why do we struggle with this? I've been thinking about that. Number one reason, I think, is we have so few examples. Bad examples. That's one thing. So many of us, you know, we learn to be parents and husbands and wives from the television. Come on. Yeah, I know. Thank you. I mean, Homer Simpson, and everybody loves Raymond, and it's like, these guys are idiots, right? Bad examples. Most of us don't, didn't have an example at home. I know that. Most of us didn't. That's why we need discipled. That's why we need to be around other people. See, this is why we need relationship, so we can hear what, how bad other people are doing and say, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that was a church joke. Um, number two, now this one's very important. Ladies, hear me on this. This is for you. Leadership and submissiveness have been tainted. They've been tainted. And that we are guilty of measuring authority and, and over-under with the, with, the, with the measuring tape of the fallen world. Because, see, in the fallen world, if you're the boss, you're the smartest you're the best, you make the most money, you can run the fastest or throw the farthest or whatever it is. See, that's the fallen world's measuring tape. When you're best, we put you on the top of the charts, 
Right? What did Jesus have to say about that? Who's the greatest among you? What did Jesus say? The servant. That's what Jesus said. You see, we measure over, under, authority, submissiveness by the, by the standards of the fallen world. I say to you ladies this. Just follow your husband's leadership. If he makes the wrong decision, no. <laughs> if he makes the wrong decision, he will be accountable for that. You will simply be accountable for whether you followed him. You say, well, if I follow him, he's going to, make, he's going to do this, and it's going to be horrible, and we're going to be you know, destitute and, and homeless and all. Well, that's, you know what? Who are you following? God. And God has called for you to follow His leadership. Thirdly, why do we struggle with this? Because of American individualism. I don't need anybody. I don't need a woman to help me. I can do this on my own. Right? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you don't believe me, Try it for a while and ask the other guys around you. They'll tell you, man, you need a woman in your life. <laughs> or, just as damaging, and this one is very popular right now, I don't need a man. I don't need a man. I can, you know, bring on the bacon, fry in the pan, mow my grass, do all, I don't need, and you know what, you can do all those things. But you need leadership. You need that. You know, other reasons. The failure of men to lovingly lead. The failure of women to lovingly submit. Ultimately, it's because we don't walk in the Spirit. We don't walk in the Spirit. Truth is, every one of us are called to submit. And submit is not a dirty, yucky word. Jesus is the great servant. And He served us at such a level that He died in our place. You know, Genesis 2 has a lot to say to us about everyday life, doesn't it? I mean, everything from our marriage to, to the whole issue of what a marriage is to, to how does it work in our homes to the equality of men and women to the need for relationship. Genesis 2 has much to say. I wonder why that is. Because it's the beginning. It's the beginning. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. All right? Let's pray together.